Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkulo. We are going to talk about the big stories of the week. Which stories? Those that have appeared on thisiscommonsense.org. That's the site where Paul Jacob has been publishing Common Sense with Paul Jacob since 1999. This week on thisiscommonsense.org, Paul Jacob wrote five pieces. The five pieces are in order. It's complicated on Monday. What is and is not censorship on Tuesday? Wednesday, it was Amazon retreats from anarchy. On Thursday, it's bipartisan daylight. And Friday, it was a guide for the surveilled. And so, Paul, for this episode of This Week in Common Sense, where do we start and how do we approach the subject of this wondrous week on this planet? Well, let's jump into Mondays, uh, which is, it's complicated. And of course, uh, that's not very specific because... These days, everything seems complicated, but let's talk about the uh, this flag over my shoulder here with the uh, whale-looking creature. Inside that whale is a very colorful uh, uh, reproduction of what Taiwan uh, looks like as a landmass, as an island nation. And uh, Monday, we, we talked about uh, Mike Pompeo's visit to Taiwan. And last week, we had talked a little bit about it when we talked about how to avoid World War III, which was surprisingly to uh, get ready to uh, be able to withstand attacks. Uh, and, and basically, the, the point I make, go to thisiscommonsense.org, uh, encourage you to read it, lots of links to more information. If you go to the website, and were to put in Taiwan or China or uh, Xi Jinping or uh, or uh, any, any uh, search like that, you'll find a lot of stuff because we we've talked about it a lot. Uh, I see China as a as a huge threat, but Pompeo, uh, you know, the Trump administration certainly opened up the ability uh, to have much closer relations with Taiwan, got more military aid to them. I've been somewhat pleased that uh, Biden has been as as good on Taiwan issues as he appears to have been. Uh, there's always kind of a little fear with Ukraine and China because his his uh, his son Hunter does business in those places, and uh, there's some question about uh, whether that there wasn't some influence peddling going on. Of course, this week, uh, not to get on a tangent, but now I'll probably lose my train of thought, but. Uh, this week, the New York Times came out and pretty much for the first time said, yes, we acknowledge that the Hunter Biden laptop, which the media generally just pretended was Russian disinformation, was in fact uh, authenticated the evidence that has been out there about emails saying, hey, save, you know, 10 percent for the big guy uh who some people suspect could be the president of the united states now uh mr joe robinette robinette uh biden i believe it is joseph robinette biden anyway um but we've done we've done quite a bit on on this subject and and uh you know trump i think it was one of the best things he did for whatever reason you know whether it was all trade or whether it was human rights or, or for whatever reason he got in a in a uh, battle with China, and then with the coronavirus, I think um, a lot of people woke up with the most of all, I think, the protests in Hong Kong and the heavy-handed nature of the police response there. Um, people began to wake up to to China. So during at the very end of the Trump administration that the, the uh, Trump Pompeo said look we're, we're opening up all contact where there are no more rules about how we can talk to somebody from Taiwan and that is pretty much right up to recognizing them as an independent nation uh, now President Xi Wen, who is in her second term uh, I think she'll be out in in what uh maybe 2025, uh, um, or maybe it's 2023. I could, I could be wrong on that. Um, I think it's 2025, but anyway, she is, um, 
you know, she gave an award to Pompeo for the for what they've done in terms of making closer relationship. And uh, and I just wanted to add and, and Biden is pretty much the Biden administration has kept these policies of open communication and so on have have uh, even if sometimes it's by misspeaking and saying, yes, we're committed to defending them, which, of course, the policy is strategic ambiguity. Um, but but the Biden administration has pretty much followed suit on on China and Taiwan with what the Trump administration was doing, which was surprisingly good and the opposite of what Obama and Bush and Clinton had done. But anyway, um, one of the things that Pompeo said is that Taiwan is an independent country. And when President Chai in, in Taiwan talks about it, she always says, there's no reason for us to declare our independence. We are ourselves, we're on this island, this is our country. You know, it'd be silly to make some announcement of independence as if that was in, in any doubt. But China threatens to invade regularly and says that it will be a provocation if Taiwan were to say it's independent in some official way or hold a referendum to vote on independence or do anything like that. And if the US were to recognize that independence, and one of the things Pompeo said as a private citizen, not as secretary of state, he's former, was that we should recognize reality and say, yes, Taiwan is a free and independent and democratic and doggone decent country, one of the few and one of the best in the world. And one of the reasons I wrote this piece was to point out something that is bigger, really, than just Taiwan and China, and it, it, it implications in Ukraine and the Middle East and everywhere else, and that is this. It's not whether we can say, hey, in a press release, that Taiwan is free and independent. I mean, I think we ought to be able to, sure. Um, and, and I believe that they're an independent country. But we have to measure our words or not measure our words based on whether someone's going to fire a missile at us or threaten to invade and kill us or kill somebody else like the Taiwanese. And, and so rather than spend a whole lot of time in Washington style, you know, I'm in front of the microphone now and I get to say whatever, and I'm not, I'm not, Casting any aspersions on on Mike Pompeo, I think that that he, where, where Taiwan is concerned, was a wonderful Secretary of State. I'm just pointing out that we have run around the world for we being the United States of America, which isn't necessarily we didn't get to make all those decisions. But the United States of America has run around for decades, promising everybody everything when it was easy to make those promises. It's not so easy to keep those promises now, I think. And I think that we ought to be 110% behind keeping promises we have made, or if we realize we cannot or are unwilling to, you know, this tape will self-destruct in, in five seconds if you, uh, you know, if you don't accept the mission. Um, the American people could say, no, we're not going to do different things. And we could have a debate about that. But as long as U.S. policy is to defend different countries, we ought to be about the business of actually doing that and not just saying it. So, and that has been a, a regular theme in a lot of stuff I've written about Taiwan, because I'm scared to death that, you know, look, Ukraine's done uh, you know, pretty well, it seems like against the, the Russian onslaught. And I have not suggested that we, you know, we don't have a commitment to defend Ukraine and the United States of America can't do everything. But I, I would like us to make commitments with truly free countries. And, you know, there's certain, it's not an exact science. I recognize that. But I think that I think that most reasonable people will will come to consensus on which countries are and which countries aren't. And Ukraine might fit that model. It's 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 probably a, it's a lot closer to the edge than Taiwan. I'll say that. Um, but I think it does kind of fit that model. I wish that they could be part of an umbrella and maybe they will at some point. Um, 
But in any of those things, they have to be, they have to be real. We have to really make the commitment. We have to not just sign the paper and not just hold the press conference and cut the ribbon, but actually then defend the country. And it's not just Taiwan that is in that conversation. It's also the Baltic countries, Lithuania and Estonia and Latvia. And they're right on the border. They're small countries. There's millions of people, millions of troops that could be, uh, you know, invading there. And, and if we make that commitment, we ought to keep it. And, um, and sometimes the, you know, I, the, the title was It's Complicated. But the solution, I think, is fairly simple, and that is to be a lot more straightforward with the American people about these commitments. I don't think most Americans know that there are 67 countries we've agreed to defend. And some of them are you know, countries like uh, El Salvador or Chile or Chile or whatever. And, and they're not, they're not going to be super tough to defend today. Down the road, they might be. Uh, and so we, we do have to kind of pay attention to what are we agreeing to do? What are you agreeing that we're going to do maybe? And, uh, and then also to actually do it, because this idea that somehow sanctions, um, it, it looks like the sanctions have, have hit and hurt Russia a little bit from what I can tell in the news and so on recognizing that I'm not, you know, that that not only is there propaganda in the Russian news cycle, there's just a, a little bit in our cycle, too. Uh, and uh, but but I don't think Ukraine's going to be saved because of these sanctions. And if we're agreeing to defend people. After they're invaded. Slapping sanctions on somebody. Or, or issuing a really tersely worded press release, I don't think that's what they're thinking the U.S. defense is going to be. And, uh, and again, this isn't the U.S. should umbrella the world and protect everybody everywhere. But when you make that commitment that, yes, we will protect you, you protect us, and I think some of those alliances make sense sometimes, then you have to actually, you have to live by it. And, and and take action. Partly because it is complicated, and I don't know some of the information, like what do we really do about nuclear weapons and what do we do about weapons in the sky that are in orbit? I don't know what what's really on the table. Uh, I don't know what the secrets that each, you know, world leader is trying to keep from, you know, I don't know how much blackmail is going on. I think there's actually more blackmail than people think. People don't think of blackmail usually when dealing with uh, foreign policy situations. But I wouldn't be surprised if there is some blackmail of we, well, for instance, Biden. I mean, that's the simplest case, right? I mean, Biden had well, relation- the whole the whole last administration. It was nothing but that. Hey, they've got the goods on them, and from ridiculous, you know, uh, charges that I think nobody believed to other stuff that somehow Putin had the goods on on Trump. Well, that was the charge, but we now know that was a charge invented by the. Hillary Clinton campaign. I mean, it goes all the way back to Hillary Clinton. It's a very strange moment, and that's part of the problem. I, I think that's one of the reasons there's war in Ukraine, is that the Democrats have been pushing so hard against Russia for so long, well, even lying about Russia. I mean, they lied about Russia with the, with the dossier, the famous steel dossier right. against Trump. Right. That was a lie against Russia as well as a lie against Trump. And yes. what, what does yes. that do to somebody like Putin, I mean, I don't know what it does because I'm not Putin, but I can have some guesses. And not just Putin, but what does that do to other people? Ultimately, even war, but politics especially, is about winning hearts and minds. And it matters what the world thinks, what the person on the street in different places in this, on this globe think. And when we don't live up to some decent uh, ideals that we promote, then it does help folks like Putin. And it also says to Putin that he can't trust us. And it says to other people that they can't trust us. And that sort of kind of creating that smoky room is very helpful to people like Putin and Xi Jinping and others who will do the kind of gaslighting of, uh, oh, well, we have a you know perfectly free society where you know we'll clamp down, down on you in a second. Well, when the US clamps down on people, when our 
big tech censors us, it may not be the same degree as what's happening in China, but it gives them cover. And so, and then we, we make this point oftentimes, and let's make it again, when we talk about China being a bad actor and a problem and a danger, and, and Putin's the same way, although not nearly as powerful or as strategically a, a problem, maybe, but when we do that, it isn't a, the U.S. is number one and we're going to fight China. It's not some nation state battle. We recognize too much of the leadership of the United States of America would like to be Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. They'd love to have that kind of power. They'd love to be able to censor more directly like Xi can do. And, and, and so this isn't a... USA versus China type thing or USA versus Russia. This is about the people of the world stopping their leaders from stomping on their neck constantly and from creating World War III. And, and that can be done by the US doing stupid things. But generally, I think it is true. It, you know, one of the things that makes Ukraine a fairly easy situation to to decide who, you know, which side you're on, at least in the borders of Ukraine, is Russia crossed the border with, with arms, is shooting and killing people and stuff. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, we've talked in previous podcasts about some of the policies, and, and it does seem like the U.S. has been not nice and not smart in the way that it's dealt with the whole breakup of the Soviet Union and I mean, it's just what an opportunity. And it seems like we fumbled it in a lot of ways. Um, but one of the interesting things, I read an article in the Washington Post this week about some of the things happening and the way they addressed the history of the problem in Ukraine with Russia, mainly slapping Trump in the middle of the sentence, even though, of course, Crimea was taken when Obama was president. And the Donbass region, the two, I guess, areas there that were taken were taken when, when uh, Obama was president and Biden was vice president. And, and over there, you know, doing all his foreign policy stuff with Hunter in the, in the back at the airport in the plane, probably just hanging out. Um, anyway, uh, um, that, that problem that aggression from Russia, and I'm not suggesting that there was some easy solution. Oh, if Obama would have just done this, that would have been the, you know, that would have solved the problem. But that's when it happened. And then there's four years in which they somehow had leverage on Trump. But during those four years, military stuff that Obama had refused Ukraine is getting into Ukraine. No territory is lost. Russia makes no other move. Now, maybe that's because Trump was so in their pocket, they just didn't worry about it. But it's awfully convenient that that's how it works out. And then Biden becomes president and Russia has troops that have invaded Ukraine. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I am not in favor of somehow, it doesn't make sense to me that, that you would say to Putin, if you're NATO, if you're Biden, we will, you know, we'll do whatever you say to kind of stop the invasion. Those don't usually stop invasions. But it seems to me that we played a lot of games with Ukraine in terms of encouraging it to try to get into NATO and then not letting it in and not completing the sale. And actually, you either bring it in and you defend it or you set some different status but you, you know, it seems to me a lot of times our foreign policy is not taking into account what the other country needs. And, and somebody out there may be kind of chuckling, well, Paul, you know, I, I hate to tell you this, but people generally just worry about what's good for them. And I, and I know that's true. But what's good for you sometimes also involves what's good for your neighbor. If you've got a friend and you treat that friend like sometimes I think the United States treats other countries, you know what? You, you don't really have a friend. Um, if you treat your spouse or your mother or your cousin or your friend 
countries, we have to recognize there's certain things that countries aren't going to be able to do. And we have to recognize that Ukraine is in a situation where it's, it's at risk. And, and we have to understand in, in Taiwan that, um, you know, if, we, if we're going to play games about we're going to defend them, everybody in Asia believes we're going to defend them. We create a situation in which we're not, where the United States completely loses face in all of Asia. And, you know, Asia is kind of a big place with a lot of economic activity happening. And if we think that our economy isn't going to crater if somehow the U.S. gets kicked out of Asia, and I'm, you know, it's not we're not there taking over countries. We're there trading. We'd like to be able to take ships through the South China Sea. So would all the countries in the world, including the countries that border the South China Sea, like Vietnam and Malaysia and and uh, the Philippines. And it, we have to look at those those situations and recognize what can and can't be done and and i think act accordingly and of course from kind of a libertarian standpoint i think the the solution is always well we we should not be involved and i just think that 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 ship has sailed that it's we are involved now we're involved up to our teeth in in treaties and providing all the manpower and, and machinery and nukes and so on and so on. And we have to go from there to the future. And I don't think it's going to be a direct to a kind of a, a Washington, uh, Jefferson, no entangling alliances, uh, step one. Uh, because the rest of the world would kind of implode with, with China would take Taiwan and Russia would take uh, maybe Poland too. And, and who knows? And so I just, I, I think that what, what I find most frightening about all these things is that it's happening. Um, troops have crossed borders. If you were to say, geez, are we headed to World War III? As someone said on television, I can't remember who it was we may already be in it. And, and it's, it's, it's high time that we were realistic about what we can do. And actually as people, as Americans stopped, you know, beating our chests and started to say, okay, uh, are, are we ready? Because if we're not, we need, we need to like signal somebody, oh, uh, maybe we don't have your back. Well, I think America is extraordinarily weak right now. We have great technology and the people themselves are weak. We proved it with COVID. Most pathetic response to a crisis in human history. And people cowered in their homes, told that they couldn't go outside and they had to wear masks everywhere they went. And there was no talk about courage. It was all about, you know, it was just, I thought it was just, it was a devastatingly stupid thing to do the whole way around. And it came from China. And I still wonder. And we know that China and Xi Jinping had influence on Putin to do this Ukraine thing. We know there's some, there's, there's some connection here. And I've read about it, and then I've forgotten the details, so I can't talk about it at length. But China has backed Putin in this endeavor at some point early on. And I think that the, the most it, likely... Has only, has only backed off PR-wise. Right. They haven't right. backed off any otherwise. And the, the point is, is that China has every reason to want to have the United States to be engaged in battles everywhere else, everywhere else around the world, right? If, it's, if we're admired in Ukraine and maybe on the brink of, of nuclear war, and then we're admired in Iran, and then we're going to go after Syria, all these things they'd love to do. Uh, uh, the, the Democrats have been pushing for a Syria to take over for decades now, you know, for a decade or more. And uh, and Iran is something Republicans have wanted to attack for decades. And China would love to have us do all those things so that they can deal with a weakened United States with American people who will obviously hate every aspect of intervention after three weeks of real war. Uh, so then they'll just walk into China, uh, to Taiwan. I mean, we'll just destroy what they need to and walk in. That's my fear, is that this is a plan. And certainly... You know, Putin and Xi Jinping are, have been talking together and their their love affair with each other is unlimited and so on. 
and and their interests coincide on a, in a lot of ways. Now, they also have a big border and they probably don't trust each other, which means they both have some intelligence. Of course, it's a big border among an unpopulated area. I mean, both of them have yes. huge deserts yes. and the steppes and things that are not, it's not the most, it's a, it's a peculiar situation they have in Asia. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting problem. But uh, I, I think that the biggest thing about Putin that we don't really understand is what he's trying to accomplish. And, and it puts me in a weird position because Putin is against something. He's strongly against something. And you and I haven't talked about it here, at least not today. And he's against globalism. He doesn't want and a dominant American European force in the world, he thinks it's corrupt and decadent. And this is one area I agree with him. I think the West is decadent. I think it's corrupt in a sense that he's not corrupt. He's corrupted in the sense that everybody can understand right away. I mean, he gets his money. You know, I mean, we, I mean, he's, a, he's an old-fashioned warlord. He's an old-fashioned... He and Xi Jinping are old-fashioned tyrants in a sense, in one sense. Right, because, right. But don't give him don't give him too much credit for recognizing that there's corruption in the West because there's corruption everywhere. And of but course, it's not, there it's is. Not, but he's not talking about corruption in the sense of of you know somebody's being paid off, though. No, no, no. He's talking about he, that, that that the West has its own designs to do different things, and and you know that's certainly true. I think that that. We, if, if the American people are not engaged in U.S. foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy is going to be ugly and terrible. And it's, it's not going to always be great, even if we are engaged in it. But it's, yeah. it's, it's a real problem. And one thing I wanted to, to jump back to a little bit, too, though, is this idea of getting engaged in Syria because somehow we have to fix Syria, even though, you know, while we're, we were years ago, the country was talking about getting involved in fixing Syria. We decided to topple Libya without any idea of how we would fix that. Um, and all of that is insane. The, 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 the getting out of Afghanistan was done in a way that was just, you know, idiotic. Um, but I, what I like about getting out of Afghanistan is it's silly to be there, it seems to me. And it's silly, you know, from even if you believe in the U.S. ruling the, the, the oceans and the, the, the globe, you wouldn't waste all your time on, on conflicts that are not so important. The, the truth is, you know, maybe 40 years ago, 50, we really needed the oil from the Middle East. I think that, you know, I mean, what, what's so stupid about Biden is that he came into office basically saying, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make it as tough as possible to drill any oil in this country or to refine any or to get it to market or anything else from the Keystone Pipeline on. Just let's cut everything and everyone can have an electric car, you know, if you're rich and if you're not to hell with you. Um, that's insane. And when you think about what's at stake you know, in Europe, I'm not so worried because there's a lot of countries there with troops and other, you know, other assets to block Russia. But if the U.S. isn't involved in Asia, you've got the number two economy, China, which is right on the heels of the number one economy, the United States. And the number three economy is Japan. And you've got other, you know, you've got Singapore and you've got South Korea and you've got Australia and you've got a lot of millions of, of people, billions of people. Um, India, which is, of course, on the edge of all that, too, which is another billion. This is a huge part of the world and the productive, growing productive part of the world and part of the world that is freer than it's been in a, in a, a while and is getting freer. And so the, the, the turn, whether you know, whether Asia becomes more free or less free is it kind of tips the balance of the, of the world. I mean, you, you kind of expect the United States and Europe to continue to be somewhat free, but extremely decadent and with leadership that, that wants, because they're so smart now and so technologically advanced, wants to do all our thinking for us and just tell us what we need to think and then tell us where to go and how to go there. And, and if we're driving, oh, no, we're not driving. The, the car's driving itself. Um, I mean, that's the world they kind of envision for us. But 
Asia, I think, is is in the balance here, and and we are just as likely to get involved in some stupid thing in the Middle East as as uh, you know as to be looking at where things are much more consequential, at least in my my view. We spent quite some time on the first Monday. Uh, we did. This is commonsense.org. But I should mention that uh, the president, the current president of Taiwan, uh, was elected in 2016. There are two four-year terms, so it's in 2024. She will no longer be the president of Taiwan. Okay. I think though, was it? She was. It was 2016 is when she started, and she just. 2020, she got reelected, and she can't get reelected again. Okay, that may be right. It's January, and so it's a little. There's all that juggling between years, like it is in America, is that you have an election in one year, and the next year the person's president. Right, right. right. So Their election so is actually like the 10th of January, or that kind of you know the second week of January. So that may be. I don't. I don't know. I was thinking it was 21, but it was actually 20. That she won her second term. So yeah. okay, that's right. And she, and she started her second term in, in in twenty as well. Right, so right. That's that's all I know. I, I didn't remember her name, so it's uh, my knowledge here is pretty limited. Chiang Win. Okay. Is her name, and I think a uh, great president has been uh, a, a great spokesperson uh, on uh, kind of talking back to Xi Jinping. Hey, um, we've got four more scripts. I'm, I'm going to mention uh, two of them that I encourage people to go and read them. You know, might as well read something. What the heck? And uh, they're at thisiscommonsense.org. Amazon retreats from anarchy. And uh, this is about Seattle. Uh, Amazon told its workforce, don't come back to work. We're going to move outside of Seattle. Why? It's not safe. It's not safe. Now, I've been to Seattle many times. Of course, Tim, you live in Washington State. You've been to Seattle many times. Uh, Seattle's you know, always been kind of a, a kooky place. But the, the idea that a city in America is not safe, and then the next day is still not safe, and the day after, and weeks later, and a year later, uh, is not safe? It's just unbelievable. And that, it, and that anyone would accept that as anything but, wait a second, everybody stop what you're doing. Wow. I briefly li- lived in Seattle, and uh, it was safe. You know, that was, that was 20 years ago. So it, it, was, right. it, was, it was nice. It was safe. Uh, I think it was friendly. Where I was at, it was very friendly, which was uh, north of Lake Washington. And it was nice. It was just a great place to live, actually. Uh, I also then lived in Kirkland, which is across the water. Right. And it's a lot richer people. And uh, I didn't fit in there. So it was, I was not rich enough for them. And I had, like now, I had COVID hair, but I didn't have COVID. I had just had long hair at the time. That was the wrong, uh, that was the wrong look for uh, Kirkland in, in 2000, ah. uh, 2001. Uh, but but uh, Seattle was fine. Yeah, like you say, a little kookier. It's like San Francisco. I, I mean, you can politically, you can kind of hit bash San Francisco. I love San Francisco. But I'll tell you, the last couple of times I've been there, it's just, uh, it's taken a couple steps down. And, and, you know, the bums were always kind of obnoxious. You know, there were some cities in America, New Orleans, I like the bums there. They're usually entertaining. In New York City, you know, I remember bumping into a bum and he started singing Sinatra tunes. I mean, it's like uh, a lot of places that's, it, you know, being a bum's a good thing. Not so much in San Francisco. So I'll just, you can guess which is tongue in cheek and which is not. But um, what was but the other also, one you want people to read, but you don't necessarily I want, want to them talk about to read, it, but we were going to talk too much about the bipartisan daylight, which is, uh, getting rid of changing back and forth. We would just stay at daylight savings time. And and uh, problem being that, you know, it used to be noon was noon. The sun was over your head. Now it's like, we're just going to decide what it is. I have to say, I do like staying with daylight savings time though, because when you think about, we spent a bunch of time talking about Taiwan and China, at least in the Hong Kong area and that part. I don't know how many time zones they have in China, but I know Taiwan 
when we're in daylight savings time, they don't switch around their clocks. We are exactly 12 hours. So you always know what time it is there. It's the same time. It's just 12 hours later or earlier, actually, 12 hours ahead. Well, you're saying is you like the, the whole thing just simply because it's convenient for you. It's convenient for me. Yes. And that that is how public decisions should be made. Is <laughs> yeah. this convenient for Paul? <clears throat> And uh, but but let's talk a little bit about what is and is not censorship, because we talk so much, Tim, about censorship and what's happening with the social media and what's happening with the government and and how they they go after things. And we talk about they shut down speeches. The left does the Antifa, the Antifa left. And the truth is, not only does Antifa exist, but the Antifa kind of, uh, uh, you know, psych offense uh, exists on the left. The, oh, that, that somehow this is the great performance art of the left is, uh, is to shout down people and threaten them and burn buildings and, and uh, destroy things. Um, but, but this is a piece about Andy No, And uh, if you don't know who Andy No is, you should. He's done a lot of reporting on the battles in in uh, the Northwest and your your neck of the woods in Portland and Seattle and other places uh, where Antifa and and Proud Boys and different groups have gotten together to like fight each other as if this is, you know, Germany in the Weimar Republic before the, the Nazis took over. Um, and uh, he's gotten beat up for doing it. Uh, and I think he's done an excellent job and, and a uh, brave and courageous job. And he's got almost zero notice or support from mainstream media because the far left, the violent, destructive far left doesn't like him. Therefore, the mainstream media doesn't cover him and doesn't sympathize with him being beaten up, trying to cover stories. I, I mean, and maybe if he's killed, they'd have a little crocodile tear or something. Um, but he, I mean, he was almost killed um, the way he was attacked at one time. Right, but they would say that he was far right and wouldn't mention that his attackers were far left. They would do that, even but, as they shed a tear. Would they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't really be honest with the situation. And he's not yes. far right, and they are far left, by the way. That's yes, right. and that's what I was going to say. You know, he could be far right. I don't know. But I've seen his reporting, and his reporting is on what's happening, and you don't feel like you're being spun to the right or the left. He's simply showing things. All right. So and it, that's it, what Antifa does not want shown. That's the interesting thing about Antifa. It's the thing on the left now is that you're not really supposed to report on the left. You're supposed to kowtow to all their opinions, but you're not supposed to look into their organizations. You're not supposed to look into the methods. Uh, you're not supposed to uh, talk even about, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing. Uh, you'll see people on the left, you know, protesting, and then they'll demand you stop recording them. Yes. You're out there record. The reason to protest is to be recorded and seen. And the, you'll see this over, for the last six years, this has been going on. And I find it an astounding thing. I think it's longer than six years. Do you remember the woman, the journalism professor of some sort at the University of Missouri, which is one of the best journalism schools in the country, supposedly, maybe once was or something, um, who remember told the guy to stop recording their protest on the campus that was that was basically in everybody's way. And he said, I'm a student journalist. I'm, you know, an independent journalist. I'm a, no. And then she calls to someone and says, we need to get some muscle here. Oh, now, yeah. She ended up losing her job over it uh, as well. She should have. Um, but it, it's hard to believe that someone who's involved in teaching people journalism would believe that getting muscle to stop some journalist is part of that crusade in favor of truth and justice and so on. But that's kind of where the left is. If, if we do it, it's good. And if we have to smash your face in to, to win, we're, 
we're doing the right thing. That's all right. It, your rights don't matter. You're, I mean, it's, it, and, and what we, what we really uh, kind of presented in this piece was the fact that on the flip side of that, the parent who says, you know, I don't think uh, Toni Morrison's uh, betrayed ought to be in the library. And, and frankly, I'm not looking to pull Toni Morrison's betrayed out of the library. I haven't read it. My wife read it. So it's, it's a pretty tough book to read. I'm not sure. You know, you're, talking, you're talking about beloved, right? Beloved. Did I say betrayed? Yes. Yeah. Beloved. And you, and look, if you betrayed, you're not beloved. So, it, <laughs> but uh, my apologies on that. But, um, but it, it, again, it's not, the issue isn't, well, should the book be there or not be there? We all are allowed to have an opinion on that. The difference is, in one case, we're talking about public. We're talking about something that's all of ours. The school belongs to everybody. And so there is some case there for us to say, hey, let's get together and decide what's going to be allowed or not be allowed. In this case, we're talking about Powell's Bookstore in Portland, which you, Tim, and uh, others tell me is perhaps the finest bookstore in the country. And, um, and they don't actually have the book at the store, but they've had protests at the store and they are selling the book online. So you can order it online. But here is a let's shut down this author and let's shut down this private bookseller so that people can't hear what he has to say. But if someone suggests that a school in which they're paying part of the cost of and in which their kid is going to, if they start to say, hey, what are you teaching? We want to know and we might object. All of a sudden, they're the bad people. They're the censors. And, and you, you would think everyone would see that's not very fair, except that if you watch the, the television news anywhere in the country, I've been all over the place. You watch the news anywhere in the country. You watch any of the network news, save for what, Fox, uh, whatever. There, there's uh, the Sinclair Broadcasting Network that has local stations that, that might be a little bit different. One America News. But ABC, NBC, CNN, MSNBC. Uh, uh, and definitely PBS. And definitely PBS. And, and PBS uh, and NPR, who basically came out on the Hunter laptop we were talking about earlier and said, we're not covering this. We're so good. We're such great journalists that we refuse to cover this. We refuse to tell you news that might hurt our candidate. Oh, did, did I say our candidate? Um, that's this is we live in a uh, uh, such a slanted media environment it's almost unbelievable and that some people still deny it i just it, it it's shocking yeah i uh, i have uh, acquaintances and friends who still have this idea that there is no censorship there is no bias in the media i mean it's it's hard to understand where they're coming from, and I believe go so much further than they do uh, than than even they think because I think that this is partly corrupted because of the CIA, and the reason is the way it is is partly because it's been planned that way by the, C the Operation Mockingbird and so forth, and uh, as I mentioned this last week, uh, you know Operation Mockingbird came after Operation Paperclip. And paperclip was when America got all the Nazi scientists from uh, uh, after World War II and brought them into uh, our government and into our military industrial complex. And they, one of their specialties was propaganda. And they, I think, influenced American government. There are people who believe that actually the, the deep state is deeply Nazi. Not Nazi in the anti-Jewish sense, but Nazi in the pure control sense. Right. Well, authoritarian or totalitarian. Right. Um, right. That's and that's. You know, I it, but I'm. But I, this is an area I don't know much about. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. You know, I don't talk about the Fourth Reich a lot. You know. I no. <laughs> no. But but uh, or the, the the Fourth Estate uh, uh, becoming the Fourth Reich. Um, with the media, the way it it is these days, um, 
I mean, it does seem like there's just so many stories that get told to this group, but not this group that, that, you know, it, it, it's a huge driver of disagreement in society, but, but disagreement over facts because, and it's not so much that sometimes they'll flat out lie to you uh, when they say that it's, you know, Russian disinformation, but it's, it's, a lot of it is also connected to the deep state so that it does become, you know, when someone says, well, the, you know, there's a bias there. Well, the bias is pretty obvious when, you know, nobody apologized to uh, the public that, that they said that this was Russian disinformation. And then it turns out that no, no, it wasn't at all. And so if you go back to 2020, this should have been covered in a totally different way. There's no apologies being made. Um, and which kind of suggests to me that maybe they aren't sorry that they got it wrong. Maybe had they known for sure that it wasn't disinformation, they would have said it was anyway. That's hard to imagine, but I think it's true. One element, uh, one fact check since we t- we're talking, uh, I, I, I really should fact check this as we go along. Uh, Melissa Click was the name of that professor in, in uh, Missouri. The one who was fired. Yes. Who was the one that was? Who wanted the muscle? Yeah, wanted the muscle, which was a great moment. It was a great video moment in in American history, and also, uh, what a great name! That's the reason I remembered it is because click. It just (laughs) seems so appropriate. She got her fifteen minutes. Woo! She did. Hey, uh, our final uh, commentary: a guide for the surveilled. I, I almost screwed that up. For the surveilled. And, um, and I encourage people to go, go read this one. It is uh, uh, basically just, you know, off of a piece by Reclaim the Net, which is an excellent website uh, that talks about a lot of things happening in the net and, and, and how uh, our privacy is being, you know, stomped on and, and so on. And it just goes through a list of different things you might want to pay attention to if you're worried about being surveilled. And, um, and it's kind of interesting in that in, in putting this together and, and thinking through it, you know, it, it seems silly that you go to all this trouble unless you thought that the government and big corporate interests that are in bed with the government were surveilling you all the time and capturing all kinds of information about you that they might use in ways that aren't for your benefit. And uh, and let's see, you know, it's almost like what do you think we live in some dystopian, you know, place and time? Yes. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. And that's the, I, I had a friend years ago, of course, uh, this, this was after several of his friends were, were raided uh, uh, over campaign finance violations in Wisconsin. Uh, but he told me, uh, I think, Paul, that we're behind enemy lines. And, uh, and sometimes it feels that way. Uh, like that all of a sudden we find ourselves behind enemy lines, that we have we have this whole apparatus of, of social media that treats us like, you know, not like citizens and not like customers, like guinea pigs. And with emphasis on the pigs, that is different than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. On balance, I don't think it's a positive development. Oh, no. And the fact that the social media companies are in on it, uh, and it seems to be the, the primary instrument of censorship and deplatforming and so forth, is interesting because we watched it happen. That was something out in the yeah. open. I mean, the first ones to come down in my memory was Stormfront. And who could complain? They're Nazis. But it wasn't long. I mean, I remember when Wall Street Journal was attacking YouTube for allowing Carl Benjamin, Sargon of Akkad, to make money off of, off of his podcasts. The Wall Street Journal, that was like 2015 or 16. They wow. were getting upset. And it wasn't long after that, Alex Jones was taken down and they just domino by domino now and down during this last 
COVID business, many, many doctors were not allowed to say things on the internet in certain places. Yes. Uh, I mean, and isn't doctor... it, well, and isn't it interesting that, that even when they like on the lab leak, which we've talked so much about the theory, even after they, they clamped down on any coverage or discussion of it. And then like a year later realize, Oh, that was not right. And undo the clamping down. There's no recognition the next time some issue arises that maybe we ought to let just people speak. No, the first thought is we got to clamp down. And this, you know, especially when you're involved in, in well, it, I shouldn't say especially, no matter what the issue is, if you decide right off the bat that somebody has a 100% license on truth and everyone else ought to shut up or be arrested, it's not going to end well. Yeah, and it, I think that we have... Two people to two groups to blame i think there's really two major groups to blame because i don't think facebook and um, twitter especially weren't looking to do censorship twitter you know uh, dorsey who resigned from twitter as, as ceo uh, fairly recently which i think is kind of interesting and telling i don't i think he's ashamed of what happened but i think he was pressured and it was the pressure was obvious it was in public the part the public part were the democratic politicians they made open letters and they made press releases. We can go, you can go on the internet and find all the pressure that was put, placed against these. And then the deep state, because deep state was heavily invest, investing in Google, the Alphabet Corporation. Right, right. That was that was a deep state creation. There might be evidence. There's an interesting coincidence that shows that Facebook was a deep state creation. There's, there's reason to believe it. Now, I don't know if it's true, but there's, there's uh, uh, DARPA Google. dropped one of its programs the day of the incorporation of Facebook. And, uh, and so there's, there's reason to suspect that maybe there was something involved in that. Maybe not. Maybe it's just one of those great coincidences of life that we can say, oh, DARPA stopped their program of getting all the information they can off of, uh, off of the Internet. Uh, they had a special program, and I forgot what it's called. I could, maybe I could flash it on the screen if I re remember what it is before this thing airs. Uh, but then, and then Facebook, the same day uh, as, it, as it's dropped, uh, the Facebook is uh, started. So we'll see in the future if we ever find out anything about that. But the deep state influence on social media, computer uh, industries, and especially on the major media is pretty well documented. Well, and, and it's, it's easy to forget about Google, but I know a lot of times when I'm looking for, I've, I read some article about a subject from National Review or from someone else, but I don't remember who, and I'll Google it, and I can't find it. As I'm going through all the different articles, I can't find it. And then I go to DuckDuckGo, and I put it in, and there it is. And it's now. How does that? How does that work? Is uh, you know, does DuckDuckGo read my mind? No, Google's giving me the articles it wants me to have on that issue, and and the article I want isn't one of them. Too bad, Paul. Unless you go to DuckDuckGo, and then you can find the article you wanted, which happens to be from a more conservative source. It's uh, and you know that happens you know, several hundred times, and you start to think that maybe something's going on with Google. And of course, Google admits that it did things in its algorithms and so on, having to deal with the, do with the lab leak theory, with all kinds of things. I think, I think it did stuff on the Hunter Biden thing that you wouldn't find, you know, the, yes. the, this article, but you'd find that article. This is, that is really powerful manipulation of people when people you have an argument with someone and they say well go find out more about this and you go and all your all the things the, the 10 on the first page and the 10 on the second and the 10 on the third from all different sources all have the same view of it that's i mean you know at a certain point maybe maybe our system of thought control it's just more sophisticated than the, the Chinese having everything on your phone and they know what you did every two seconds uh, of the day. Um, in the U.S., we have, we have all this information, but the way that people are able to access it is, uh, is a little scary.
Um, it's, it's not so hard, I think, to hide stuff from people. And then when they say, how come nobody knows about this? Well, it's right here. It was printed. It's not like anyone's hiding it. <laughs> There's another way of looking at it, though, that's not so conspiratorial. It's only slightly conspiratorial. And that is Google came into popular acceptance and came to dominate the search engine industry very quickly in the late 90s, early 2000s, right? And they did so with with an amazing understanding of, uh, you might say, memetic networks of related topics and how links were done. And they had a new way of thinking about how the internet worked and what was important when you went, were doing a search engine. And it became so dominant because it was so useful, because their way of looking at it was so important but what did they do with it then so now it's 20 years later and they basically took their all the gains they made all their investment in truth and the the uh advantages of understanding how networks work that is of links linkages um, and weightings of link links and just you know all of all the savvy they had and they parlayed the all the social acceptance they got and all the cachet they got and now they can control they got power they got power just by being good at what they did and they began to actually undermine their own reason for existence that is the initial reason that they were good was that they had a really interesting way of connecting information and now they're parlaying it to give basically misinf misinform and disinform people they were caught and basically caught in the in, in 2016 uh, waiting searches on Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Remember, the, I think that's something you wrote about at the time. It's it's been a long time already. That's what is that? Eight years already? That's six. No, six, six. six. It's still yeah. a long time, but it was it was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, and, but no, and, that that is is that not a campaign contribution? And the last thing I want to do is have anyone having to report anything like that. To the federal election commission but of course you do have you know this this uh oh if if somehow this google were pushing things in the other direction i'm convinced there'd be a lot of democrats suggesting that they need to file campaign finance reports and that that is a contribution to the republican campaign in the same way that when you're waiting those results that's a contribution to Hillary Clinton's campaign. Now, again, I don't believe that everybody in America has to send something to the government every time they contribute to somebody's campaign for public office or any other, uh, you know, uh, political or or social goal that they're trying to trying to uh, push out there. But but it is interesting that that never gets mentioned that somehow you know they shouldn't be able to use their products to benefit a, a uh, political candidate running for office. Well, to me, it just signifies, I think, well, signals to us that if we find one of these things out about like Google, we should stop using Google. And uh, YouTube, when it started betraying us, we don't use YouTube as much as we used to. So we're on Rumble and no. we're and, and we're on, you know, the, the podcast sphere uh, using SoundCloud. Uh, but I don't think enough people make that kind of boycotting choice is that it seems like we should be actually be very concerned when an organization betrays the very principles upon which it was useful in the first place. And yes. that's, that's, I mean, the great thing about YouTube was that it, you know, which was bought by Google at some point, but the great thing about YouTube is it allowed anyone to put up almost anything. Right. Right. And, and right. so we got all this amazing access to just a, just the, the well, and, and, immense and, creativity of human beings everywhere. Yes. And, and people trying to shut down any of this stuff. None of it. I have never been stopped and forced to watch something on social media or on YouTube or anywhere. And and so, you know, the, the, the whole power of these platforms is that anyone can say what they want to say. And, and, you know, people who believe in democracy, which is this word the left throws around like, like uh, I wish they had some clue of what it was. But, but if, if you're for everybody having a say, then everybody actually gets to say it and not gets shut down and censored. 
And if people like something that somebody said that you don't like, tough. And, and, and they want a world in which, no, the elite gets to decide that no one gets to hear that stuff they might like because it's not what we like. Right. Thanks for joining us. And by this time, you do know where to go five days a week. That's thisiscommonsense.org. What do you do there? You read Paul's column five days a week, and on the weekends, you either listen to or watch and listen to this podcast. That's all there's to it. Thisiscommonsense.org. Mm-hmm.